Hello, and welcome to the Present Moment Podcast. We focus not only on the physical dimensions of health and healing, but the mental, psychological, social, and spiritual dimensions as well. We believe where the mind goes, the body will follow. I'm Molly Ross Furman. I'm the Executive Director for the Integris James L. Hall Jr. Center for Mind, Body, and Spirit, where we are always working to create a more compassionate and open-minded model of health care and health education for our patients and the community. And I'm Joe Holcomb. I'm the Manager of Oncology Wellness at the Integris Cancer Institute. We are excited to bring you our very first episode. We welcome our first guest today, Colin Walkie. Colin is a legislator, attorney, and mindfulness coach. As a mindfulness coach, Colin has worked with CEOs, state agencies, drug and alcohol recovery programs, and many other groups and individuals. He is the co-founder of Awake OKC Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to bringing secular mindfulness-based practices to the community at large and at-risk groups. Colin has studied mindfulness for 20 years and is the author of Right Speech, a Buddhist politician's guide to changing your life and the world. He is married to the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, and they have two wonderful puppies, Tenzin and Teddy. We welcome you today, Colin. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Molly. Oh my goodness, and you're such a change maker for our city and a passionate public servant. Well, I appreciate that. Yes. And and that's part of the reason why I got into mindfulness and started Awake OKC in the first place was because I recognized that there was a need that was not being met within the community at large. And so uh, given the fact that mindfulness had become so popular in pop culture and was, you know, finally seen as something that is scientific based and those sorts of things, uh, it was easier to implement. But that's that's the reason why, because I think we all need to, you know, many hands make light work and we all need all of us in order to succeed. Um, Yeah, as we read in your bio, goodness, you've been studying uh, meditation for 20 years. And I also read where you studied with a monk from Sri Lanka. Uh Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, I'll I'll give you my journey uh, in in an elevator pitch, so to speak. So I uh, started uh, meditating when I was a senior in high school. I came across a book called the Dhammapada, uh, and it's a foundational text within Buddhism. Uh, But it struck me because my entire life, everyone had told me, hey, if you want to be healthy, eat right and exercise. And so I ate right and I exercised, but no one ever told me what to do with my mind, my brain, my head. What do I do to make that better? And within the first few pages of the Dhammapada, I realized this is talking about mental health, how to control your mind or accept your mind as you come to learn. Um, and But with a lot, like a lot of meditation practitioners, it was very difficult when I first started because that was before YouTube. It was before smartphones. And so you're sitting there trying to learn how to meditate from reading a book, which is very hard because as we all know, when we first sit down, we forget everything that, you know, we're lost in thought. And uh, so my practice ebbed and flowed through college. I worked with a little bit with an Asian philosophy professor and those sorts of things, but it never really caught on. Um, I understood the logic and the philosophy behind it, but for whatever reason, meditation itself just wasn't helping me. And so my habituated pattern of behavior that I've always tried to fix is my anger. I have a very hot temper. And so I quit 
quit meditating three year, or midway through law school. And after three years, my wife looked at me and said, OK, no more holes in walls. Uh, you're going to go see a counselor or we're going to have a longer conversation. Uh, and so in 2011, I actually found my teacher. Uh, his name is Bonte Piratana. He's been a monk since he was 11 uh, and he's from Sri Lanka. And his uh, monastery, which houses three other monks, one of whom is a former Catholic monk, an American monk and another Sri Lankan monk, uh, actually just down the street from Integris here at 50th and Portland. So very local, tight-knit community. Yeah, so I've, uh, in fact, I just got to see him last week. Uh, He's in town uh, for a week, and then I'll be spending the next six days with him next week in a silent retreat, so. That is amazing. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's an incredible journey. <laughs> it is. And, 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 and the thing is, it's been a wonderful journey because I've learned so much and, and my teachers learned so much from me and, and from the culture itself. Uh, he's been a chaplain for the military recently and he'll come back from uh, Marine boot camp training. He'll be like, Oh, Colin, it's so scary. I mean, these people are yelling at them and you know, he doesn't understand because he's never been exposed to what the military is like. And it is a, it's, it's been a fun time learning cultural differences between us. And I guess this experience has kind of led you to be co-founder of Awake OKC. Can you tell us a little bit about the services that you offer through Awake OKC? Yeah. So uh, we're on a hiatus till the first of the year because of COVID. So what happened was we started in 2018. Uh, We offered classes five days a week. And up until last month, we did the same thing five days a week, open to the public, uh, free of charge, donation based. Uh, And then we also partnered with particular organizations or groups. And uh, in fact, in 2019, Mayor Holt declared Oklahoma City's first day of mindfulness here in Oklahoma City. And we held an entire day-long programming at various local venues to expose people to mindful eating, mindful art walk, um, all sorts of fun activities. Uh, We wanted to recreate that in 2020, but then, you know, here comes COVID. Um, And after COVID, our uh, numbers and classes declined. And so we're trying to figure out whether a different schedule or something along those lines. So after the first of the year, we'll be back to doing classes five days a week on a different schedule. Um, But during that time, one of the most impactful uh, opportunities I've ever had came to the fore where DHS approached us and said, would you work with our our employees during COVID? And so from the middle of March until the end of May, we did a half hour meditation with DHS employees and we never had less than 50 people on a call. And so, I mean, that was a testament because it started out at 250 and as you can anticipate, people fall off. But I was impressed that 50 people stuck with it every single day for the month and a half, two months. That's impressive. What do you think uh, kept people coming back? Um, each time to, to meditate with you over that that period? I think it was the realization that we've all really come to, the same one that I came to when I was a senior in high school, which is, what do I do to relieve this stress, this anxiety? Um, it's been compounded for economical reasons, you know, over the past year and a half. And I think people are starting to search for new ways of resolving their suffering, quite frankly, um, because instead of checking out and watching Netflix or whatever it is, I think people are realizing that doesn't fix the problem. There's got to be another way to fix the problem. And so I think that's part of the reason why people are looking into mindfulness now more than ever. That's great. We also know that you have a new book out. 
Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's called Right Speech, a Buddhist Politician's Guide to Changing Your Life and the World. Might be a bit hyperbolic. Uh, but <laughs> the reason why I wrote this book is because I think that in Oklahoma, a lot of people uh, have a misconception of what Buddhism is all about, right? And so from my perspective, Buddhism is a secular um, belief system. It's a philosophy and a praxis. So you can be a Christian and a Buddhist, in my opinion, and you could probably debate that, but I think that's perfectly compatible. Um, and and so I wanted to write a book that kind of opened up this secular view of Buddhism for the rest of the world so that they understood Buddhists don't worship the Buddha. That's not the point of all of this. It's not like Christianity. Um, so that was the first thing. But the second aspect that I really wanted to address is how do we communicate with one another in our communities? Uh, Everybody's online. Everybody's seeing the worst aspects of ourselves through the media, through social media. And so I wanted to explain to people, look, there's a better way to communicate with the people within your community. And that's right speech. And within Buddhism, right speech is composed of three parts. Right. So is it true? Is what you're about to say true? Uh, is it beneficial? And then finally, is it the right time? <laughs> and the problem is you have to be mindful to ask yourself those questions before you speak in the first place. All right. So you've got to develop mindfulness to develop right speech. And then it's navigating. Is this the right time or is it not? Because we've all experienced those things where we've said something we thought was beneficial, but was at the wrong time or, you know, that was at the right time, but wasn't beneficial. Uh, but if you can answer yes to all three of those, then talk away. But I want all of us to take a pause before we speak in the first place and just think about what the words are that are coming out of our mouth. And I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I will say that being mindful has certainly um, eliminated about 90% of my foot and mouth syndrome that I have. So, so it, it is a benefit. It's not 100% panacea, but it is a benefit. That's great. And where can we find your book? So it's available at Full Circle Bookstores here locally, as well as Commonplace Books in Edmond. And then it's also available on Amazon.com. We understand you're passionate about uh, criminal justice reform. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the work you're doing uh, in that area? Specifically with regard to mindfulness, a couple of things. So first of all, uh, we have a fantastic uh, criminal drug court judge here in Oklahoma County named Ken Stoner, who is a big Love believer. He's fantastic. And he's a big believer in mindfulness. He's a mindfulness practitioner himself. Yes. Um, and so he wants to see how we can implement that within the drug court framework. And we're looking at ways to do that. Um, separate and apart from that, though, Awake spent eight weeks with Remerge, which is a criminal diversion program uh, for pregnant women and, and mothers. And it was a fantastic activity. We were about to do another eight weeks and then COVID came to town. Uh, so so that's one of the other aspects. And then we have worked with uh, homeless shelters uh, for individuals who actually are in drug and alcohol recovery programs that also have criminal backgrounds. Um, because if we stand up in front of a judge or if the mission stands up in front of a judge and says, hey, listen, they're working a program. These are the components of the program. The judges are more likely to give them lenience on you know whatever fines or fees they may own and those sorts of things. And so we've spent... Um, several months with uh, homeless shelters and those sorts of uh, uh, organizations in order to help um, try and keep these people off of the streets and out of jail itself. And Remerge is such a wonderful program. My my twin brother, Bob Ross, uh, with the In As Much Foundation has been heavily involved with Remerge. Um, so is Trisha Everest and has a lot of community people, you know, that, that it's a great program. Me. Absolutely. It's yeah. it's great. 
Um, I'm curious. So I watched an interview with you, Colin, and it was a really good interview on Channel 5, I believe. Um, and you're involved with a study um, on the correlation between mental health services and law enforcement intervention. Yeah. Can you tell our audience uh, about that? Right. So I think that a lot of people are, are certainly aware by now and are becoming more aware of the problems when law enforcement interacts with somebody who's having a mental health issue. Um, and uh, some people say that's a lack of training, uh, whatever, lack of resources, whatever it might be. But there are certainly problems when law enforcement encounter individuals with mental health needs uh, and that are going through crises. So the question then becomes, how can we address those? So one of the things that the state of Oklahoma has implemented, for example, is what's called the iPad program. And so the iPad program is where every single police officer in the state of Oklahoma has an iPad in their car. And if they come across an individual who is going through a mental health crisis, they're able to tap a button and get a hold of a psychologist or psychiatrist right then and there in order to help address the situation. The problem, and that's a great, a great thing, and it's working in a lot of great counties. The problem, though, is, is there's a lack of resources and available psychologists and counselors who can actually participate in that program. So we need to get the, the labor force built up in that regard. Um, but that's one avenue that we're looking at. Another avenue and problem that people face is what happens when my loved one isn't self-harming and isn't presenting a threat of harm to somebody else and yet has been ordered to attend inpatient treatment. Well, police typically won't go pick up this individual because they don't pose a harm to themselves or others. And so one of the other avenues of legislation that we're looking at doing this year is allowing individuals who have guardianship or some other type of criteria over an individual to compel them and compel law enforcement to actually get them into treatment. Um, because we know that treatment does work if people will stay with it. Mental health courts are extremely successful, um, just like criminal uh, drug courts. Um, the problem is, is resources. We need only about a third of the counties in the state of Oklahoma have a mental health court. And so we need to expand that to all 77 counties and again, get the resource to, to resources to fulfill that. Um, so I'm hopeful that this session will see an increase in resources for the iPad program, as well as a way for loved ones to get their family members into compelled treatment. Um, and then we'll see what else comes along. You know, I have a friend, Lori Dash, who does some work uh, with us at the Integris Cancer Institute Wellness Center uh, in the area of uh, yoga nidra mm -hmm. and uh, meditation. And I understand that you are in a program with her, with uh, Jack Kornfeld and Tara Brock. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's been like for you on that journey yeah. um, with them in that program? So uh, I'm, 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 it's funny you asked about that. And the reason is, is because I actually chose this program. So for those of you who aren't familiar, Jack Kornfield and Tara Brock, and especially Jack, were some of the early Westerners who came back from Thailand and spread Buddhism throughout America. Uh, in fact, set up the Insight Meditation Institute in, uh, I think it's New York or Boston. Um, and so they're very famous individuals, and they put together a mindfulness meditation teacher certificate program. Uh, and I chose this program because there's different types of meditation and mindfulness that we can all practice. Uh, one of those is what's known as meta meditation, which is loving kindness meditation. And I will tell you that the one type of meditation I don't enjoy doing is loving kindness <laughs> meditation. But but Jack Kornfield and Cheryl Brock are both huge proponents of it. And the consequence of that was I felt this would force me to practice in a way that I don't typically practice. It will broaden my experience and knowledge base. And so I wanted to push myself in that regard. And it's been a wonderful program. Uh, we've gotten a lot of good substance out of it. It's been nice because my cohort group, the people that I work with directly, so my mentor in that group is from Australia. Uh, and uh, the other cohorts are on the East Coast and West Coast. And so it's been good to see uh, worldwide involvement and how 
of intercultural dialogues. And so it's been a really good, interesting exposure, especially in an area of meditation that I'm not uh, that prone to. <laughs> and I understand it's very competitive to get into. There's a lot of people that apply each year. And what is it? Just a handful actually get into the program. Yeah, I think they have around 5,000 applicants and about 2,000 get in, I think is the, wow. is the reality of it. Yeah. And they want to make sure that you're serious about it. Uh, as part of it, you have a requirement to do a six day silent retreat um, and then end up doing a total of 12 weeks of a practicum uh, with at least six individuals. And so it is it is a time intensive program. Uh, but I'm hopeful that what I'll gain out of it is the ability to come back into the community and, and spread more loving kindness. Great. I love that. I'm wondering, Colin, would you give us a little taste of meditation um, for our audience just so that they can get an idea of what you practice? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to kind of caveat this. So first, I want to make some definitions clear. So what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is knowing what you're doing while you're doing it. Uh, And I think most of us think that we're sometimes usually mindful, but I can prove to you that you're wrong. Even when you think you're being mindful, you're not, uh, but we're not in a video situation for me to show it. But the point there is, is we're supposed to be mindful all of the time, period, end of story, even while you're using the restroom. And I point that out because there was a famous Zen monk in the 13th century who wrote an entire memorandum about how to be mindful while using the restroom. So you're supposed to be mindful all of the time. Meditation is a particular time of day that you set aside to be mindful, right? So it's kind of like the batting cages. The real life is the baseball game. Batting cages is meditation, getting good at your swing. So the reason why I say that is because one other thing that I think is important is that we have to readjust our attitudes when we meditate. We think that we go through the world as a doer. Uh, we do this, we think that, and it's not the case. In fact, we're beaters. And the reason why we're so confused about that is just like we weren't ever taught about our mental health, we were never taught about our sixth sense. You ask anybody, how many senses do you have? Five, sight, smell, touch, taste, hear. You have six, which is your mind, because all your mind does is perceive thoughts, right? And your thoughts, as we all know, aren't yours, because if you're trying to go to sleep and you can't, It's not your mind, right? It's somebody else's mind. And so I try and tell people, first of all, learn to be an observer of everything, the sensations in your body, the feelings, Um, learn that all you have to do is observe and then react. Because what we're trying to do in mindfulness is put space between stimulus and reaction. So with all of those caveats in place, let's just do a real quick basic breath meditation and kind of see how this works in practice. So if you feel comfortable, close your eyes. If if you don't, leave them open and just kind of stare at the floor. No particular focus. And the first thing that we do when we meditate is we take three deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth. Again, feel the spine straighten. Feel the body relax. One more time. And the reason we do that is because it activates the parasympathetic nervous system to calm us down. The next thing that we want to do is, if you're sitting, know that you're sitting. If you're standing, know that you're standing. Start at your feet and notice the sensations in your feet. Notice the way your shoes wrap around your feet. And slowly go up the body, noticing the legs, the shins, the calves, the cloth, your knees, 
your hamstrings, your thighs, your weight of the body against the cushion, your back, your belly. And we want a soft belly, so if you notice any tension, just let it go. Your chest, your arms, the back of your neck, your throat, your eyes, any tension around your eyes or temples, and the top of your head. Now what I want you to do is I just want you to turn your attention to the breath, breathing in and out through the nose. And the first thing that I'm going to ask you to do is to notice the cool air when you breathe in. And notice you don't have to do anything to experience the sensation of coolness. It just appears in your field of awareness. Now notice the warmth as you breathe out. Now notice the pause between the exhale and the inhale. And now notice the length of the breath. Short, long, middle. And then finally, just for fun, notice your belly as you breathe in, how it rises. Now when you breathe out, it falls. And notice you don't have to do anything to be aware of the rising and falling of the belly. And now slowly open your eyes. So that was a really short and quick meditation, but I wanted it to kind of help people understand that there's a lot going on within your body where if you take the time, you can notice it, right? That's, those same sensations are happening throughout the day. You're just unaware of it. So what I want people to do is to learn to be aware of those sensations 24-7 while they're standing up, having a conversation, being aware of the fullness of human experience. And it's not easy. We say that mindfulness is an easy practice, but it's difficult to do. <laughs> and that's just it. It's like diet and exercise. You have to stick with it. And if you do, your life will change dramatically. You know, I've been uh, meditating for some time, um, and I know even for me, in a situation like that that you just let us in, my mind wants to race and chatter. Uh, if others are experiencing that, um, what would you say to them about um, the mind always wanting to focus on something and kind of how to go uh, deep within. Yeah, and that's a, a very common misconception about mindfulness is we're not supposed to have thoughts. That's so wrongheaded. I can't emphasize that enough. The Dalai Lama has thoughts, okay? We all have thoughts because we have this thing called the default mode network. So anytime you're sitting there at a stoplight or whatever and, and you're ruminating and being self-reflective, that's your default mode network. That's your biology at work. So thinking 
is a biological process. The other thing that I think it's important for people to understand is, is that uh, thoughts think themselves, right? Most of your thoughts are not purposefully driven thoughts. And so when people are talking about, well, I can't quit thinking, great, that's not the point. If you get distracted in meditation, there are several options that you have. One is you can count each exhale. So breathe in, exhale one, breathe in, exhale two, and that will help you stay on track. Um, if that's too distracting, uh, then one of the other options that you have is to be more aware of the thoughts themselves. Um, and so if you get lost in thought, I tell people to do RAIN, which anybody that's in the mindfulness community, that means recognize, acknowledge, uh, identify, or I'm sorry, recognize, acknowledge, investigate, and non-identification. So what does that mean? It means I'm sitting here, I'm meditating, and all of a sudden I realize I'm lost in thought, right? Okay, well, I've recognized it. I've acknowledged it. It's okay. I've investigated it to some degree. Uh, it's about the future, about the past. You don't want to play with it too much. And then non-identification. Thoughts think themselves and go back to the breath. And here's the really cool thing is that people think, oh, I'm lost in thought. I'm not doing it right. It's not working, right? In fact, recognizing that you're lost in thought is the actual exercise itself. So that's a repetition like you're in the gym. It's not about not thinking. It's about recognizing when you're lost in thought. So for example, the word sati in the Pali language means or is interpreted as mindfulness, right? But what it literally means is to remember. So every time you remember you're lost in thought, you did another rep at the gym. Good job. Keep going. And I promise you that eventually, if you either meditated long enough in one sitting or you meditated, you know, enough days, you will start to notice those thoughts slow down because it's all about recognizing when you're lost in thought. I always have to tell myself that thoughts are okay. It's the nature of the mind, kind of That's what right. you're saying. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, and, and that it's not a bad thing. People think they're doing it wrong. It's not the case. Um, you're just getting more practice. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. And I think Joe told me last week that if you meditate for 11 minutes a day for three weeks, it will actually help rewire your brain. So that's really cool when, when we talk about the science behind of this and neuroplasticity. Um, yeah. And as a matter of fact, for those of you who've ever heard of a guy named Dr. Judson Brewer, he's from MIT, Brown, Harvard, and he does a lot of addiction mindfulness uh, studies. And one of the things kind of similar to uh, what Joe was saying is, is that length of time doesn't necessarily matter as much as frequency. Okay. So one of the things that they're finding out with, re and first of all, I would strongly encourage people to meditate at least 10 minutes a day, right? So uh, uh, I don't want to say that, but um, what they've noticed is, and this makes intuitive sense, if you just did two minutes throughout the entire day, like every hour or whatever, obviously you're going to be more in tune of being mindful every hour than if you just did it 20 minutes in the morning or 20 minutes at night or whatever. Uh, and so those shorter infrequent bursts are actually just as beneficial as if you sat down for three hours, right? So I don't think people need to pretend that they're Rambo and go out there and do it all uh, in one sitting. Uh, if you're starting out, five, 10 minutes is plenty. In fact, myself, my personal practice, it's 20 minutes during the week. And then I do an hour on Saturday and an hour on Sunday. 
Great. And Colin, one last question for you. Where can we take your mindfulness classes? So um, you can contact me directly at colinwalkie at outlook.com. That's C-O-L-L-I-N-W-A-L-K-E at outlook.com. And after the first of the year, if you'll just go to awakeokc.org, once we've been completely revamped, they'll have links for both online as well as in-person classes. Wonderful. I'm definitely going to sign up. Right, Joe? Me too. (laughs) Yay. Colin will be presenting on Everyday Mindfulness for our virtual Mind, Body, and Spirit class next Wednesday, November 10th from 6 to 7 p.m. For more information and the Zoom link, please email Elliott at K-E-L-L-Y-E dot E-L-L-I-O-T-T at IntegrusOK.com. Thank you, Colin. Thank you both for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you.